know if this is happening for you guys right now, but it's like all the COVID weddings are like the next year is going to be hell. I think I'm a couple years past you, thankfully, but I remember those years, and I can't imagine what COVID would have done. To them. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm like approaching the age where where uh, I'm gonna start getting divorces, uh, to second weddings. Yeah, um, but luckily, luckily, there's like there's way less of an obligation to go to this, so you know, I can I can just ignore those. Chat with folks I haven't seen in 20 years and dance, you know, all my favorite things to do. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a data error led to dramatically underreported cases of COVID related quarantines in New Orleans public schools. The New Orleans City Council deferred a vote on the mayor's proposed plan to allocate almost $80 million in federal funding under the American Rescue Plan Act. And we'll get an update on Brandon Jackson, a prisoner at the David Wade Correctional Center who was convicted by a split jury almost 25 years ago. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Good morning, Carolyn. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Morning. So, Marta, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. There were some questions about COVID-19 quarantines in New Orleans schools. It seems there was recently a bit of an issue with the data being correct. What has happened? Yeah, so what we have learned is that the district uh, this week admitted to improperly um, reporting out quarantine numbers. And they said that was because they um, somehow were not accounting or reporting unvaccinated quarantines. So we have people who quarantine who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. Um, you know, they're kind of divided into two groups. But for some reason, the district was failing to report unvaccinated quarantines. And keep in mind, unvaccinated quarantines would be the far larger group of quarantines. You know, they're both required to quarantine, and yeah. and young children can't receive the vaccine. So. Right. So they had just split. They had just not reported those numbers at all. That's what it appears. Okay. What uh, What did they tell you when you asked about it? What was the initial response? Yeah. So you know, initially they you know they said this was a data error. We asked for you know further clarification, um, and basically, you know, that they said that they thought the data looked a little wonky, so that they did a review and that they realized that there had been an error in the way they were collecting quarantine data. Because you have been questioning those numbers for a couple of weeks now. It's been it's been odd. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say Charles and our healthcare, former healthcare reporter Philip and I all the last couple of weeks thought these numbers looked pretty wonky. They were, you know, one case to one quarantine. And we did not see those types of like one to one, one to two, one to three ratios when it came to quarantines in the past. So they really didn't make any sense. Um, and so I, we, I asked the district about this last week. And they basically said, you know, we're, you know, Ida was basically a, a quarantine for us. You know, everyone was gone for two weeks. It was a buffer. And, you know, we're doing a really good job with vaccines and distancing and other, um, you know, virus mitigation measures. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very strange. It makes me wonder if you asking was what made them check on the data, because that, that initial response, it was, it, it was just the kind of boilerplate litany of one Ida to look at what a great job we've been doing. Um, without really even attempting to address the question at all. And then three days later, 
uh, they come out and say, oh, you know, looks like there was a data error. It wasn't Ida. It wasn't us doing a great job. There was just a screw-up of some kind. It was a significant change in numbers, right? Like last week, they were reporting 80 quarantines. And then after this error was fixed, it, it was, you know, upwards of 440, I think. I looked at it last week when the numbers came in, and uh, the ratio of uh, cases to quarantines was something like five quarantines for every three cases. Before IDA and before this parent data error, the ratio was about 10 quarantines across the entire system for every case, which you know makes a, a, a lot more sense uh, because you know it, the, the the protocol is that. Everyone who's unvaccinated, which would be the majority of elementary school students, everyone who's unvaccinated who's within, you know, a, a close contact range, which is six feet uh, or three feet if masked, um, they're supposed to quarantine. So you would you would think you'd be seeing numbers at least, you know, uh, three or four to one for quarantines to cases, and it was it was not anywhere near that. So tell us why it's important for these numbers to be accurate. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is really this is really a weather vane for you know parents, families, and anyone else who's working in the education system. Um, when you see those quarantine numbers, you you know how well your school's doing it. Mitigating factors, or you know, taking preventative measures, and then also you know just what the general case numbers are looking like. Um, and this is especially important for elementary school um, families, where you know young students can't yet get vaccinated. You know, the district has also been very much sensitive about its perception of whether or not it, you know it's over or under reporting quarantining quarantines or cases and so this was just kind of another just calls into more question you know how this is being done and how it how it's being reported right and so given all of that um what what are the current numbers as they're being reported um so the district is reporting 45 active cases that's down from you know, a little bit over 60 two weeks ago, a little bit over 50 last week. So those case numbers are down, um, but they are reporting over 500 quarantines. So, hmm. and that's exactly like Charles mentioned before, 45 cases to 500 plus quarantines is, is more in, you know, kind of that ratio of what we've seen in the past. Yeah. I, I assume that what we're going to start seeing in the upcoming months is those quarantine numbers going significantly down because theoretically, you know, as we're getting closer to full of, uh, the, the approval of uh, COVID vaccines for five to 11 year olds, um, you know, a lot, a lot fewer kids when they get vaccinated will have to, will have to quarantine. So we, we probably will see those numbers start, to, those quarantine numbers start to go down in a similar way that we were seeing because of an error, except now it won't be because of an error. This week, they told us that, the, you know, they're ready to stand up vaccine sites for kids um, and that, you know, once the FDA does approve the vaccine for five to 11 year olds, they'll they'll focus on weekend rollouts so that those younger kids can be getting vaccinated, you know, with their parents with them. Hmm. So for the last few weeks, it seems or really this whole school year, I feel like we've been every time we've talked about this, we've said to think sort of flippantly said things like you know the asterisk or the caveat you know we've we've qualified these answers because you've constantly been questioning them do you have confidence now that these are the real numbers i mean i think i think we're always going to be seeing slightly no, lower numbers than what are actually out there because this is a self-reporting system so there could at any point be whether it's a 
parent or a family not telling the school about a case or whether it's a school not telling the state or the city about a case or, um, you know, the other thing is that like our number or the reporting periods are, you know, can be delayed too. So that's, there can be a lag in those results coming in. So right. I think everything is probably a little bit lower than what is actually out there, which is, you know, generally true of the city and the state as well. Um, you know, I do, as to, as to whether they're accurate, I think with every report and with every question that we ask, we learn more about what's going on. So I would say I have, you know, more confidence in what we were seeing last fall for sure. Um, but it is just, you know, it's what we know about how their reporting system works. And, you know, we gain a clearer picture of that every day. Any of these numbers, you can never take them as the, you know, the true state of COVID in the city, the state or the school system. But, you know, they're, they're there to give you a, to give you an idea of overall spread within within the city within the state or within the school system you know that's why they're useful so uh you know as marta said this is dependent on people being willing to go take a test people uh people being willing to report to schools and schools following the proper protocols and you know at any one of those steps is is can easily fall apart and then and then there's other figures that they use like we reported last fall the district has a percentage that it puts up of percent positive in the district yeah. so that's how many positive cases there are 45,000 students and plus staff and you know that that number just really doesn't represent anything because you have no idea how many people were tested so yeah. right right it, it's things like that where once you gain clarity you know which numbers to rely on and which numbers not to rely on mm-hmm. and you look for them to be aligning with the city and state stats as well great thank you marta Thank you. And thanks for following up, following this so closely. This is so important and you've been doggedly doing it. And, and as a result, we've got some numbers that are a little more reassuring, at least. I'd also like to thank my editor for letting me do that because I, I think we're the only ones who are reporting on these numbers every week. And that's, we've gained, we've learned a lot from doing that. And I think we've, we've found out new things because of it. Yep. I think it's been, uh, it's, been, it's been great reporting and it's been a useful resource, resource for people. So very well done. Back padding all around. Thanks. This is Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, the Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The New Orleans Press Club just awarded eight Excellence in Journalism awards to The Lens, including first and second place for government and political reporting, and first place for this very podcast you're listening to now. The Lens is a nonprofit public media. You can tell because of the high quality of what you read each day. You can tell because of the stories and research and doggedness that we use to bring you the news that matters. And you can also tell because we ask you directly to support the service that makes such a difference in your life. Your investment supports high quality news, in-depth reporting, and connections to your neighbors and the world. Please make a contribution today at thelensnola.org. And thank you. Michael, New Orleans City Council Budget Committee got the first detailed look at how Mayor LaToya Cantrell plans to spend a big amount of money, spent $77 million from the federal government. It was allocated as part of the American Rescue Plan Act for New Orleans. Broadly, what did we learn about what they plan to use it for? 
So the $77, $77 million in question here is, is kind of the first amount of, of the federal dollars that the city is expecting to receive from the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, overall, the city is expecting roughly $380 million um, in aid. And you know what, what we've learned about what the city plans to do with that money is that instead of using these for specific individual projects or spending it all at once, what they're going to try to do is spread the money out over the next three to four years um, because the city is currently anticipating that the city's revenue will continue to be down, um, you know, related to, to, to uh, the, the COVID pandemic um, until roughly 2025. Um, so basically the plan for this money is to fill in these, these uh, funding gaps over the next few years. Um, so the $77 million here, you know, it, it's not, like it's going to the most exciting new projects in the city. It's it's filling you know gaps in department budgets. It's funding um, salaries that you know for positions that have been previously approved, but we had no money for um, for uh, raises, things like that. So you know we, we're not talking about one thing. We're talking about a bunch of small stuff. The committee that reviewed this opted against voting on that. Why did they do that? Yeah, so, so the, the issue was that the, the uh, Cantrell administration came with this PowerPoint presentation for the city council to explain exactly where the money was going to go. Um, a council researcher um, pointed out during the meeting that the dollar amounts in the presentation um, did not match up with um, the dollar amounts in the ordinance itself. So, for example, you know, the ordinance adds $17 million to the NOPD budget. Uh, and the presentation says they're only adding $5 million to the NOPD budget. I mean, it kind of goes that way for, for most of the departments that are gone over in the presentation. Um, the explanation here is that a lot of this $77 million um, is really funding one thing, which is um, furlough costs. So at the end of 2020, um, the city of New Orleans instituted city employee furloughs. So one day uh, every two weeks, um, most employees were not working. Um, they didn't have to work those days, but they also lost their pay for those days. So right. it amounted to roughly a 10% pay cut once the, the furloughs began. So when the city wrote the budget for uh, uh, 2021, uh, it was built with the idea that these furloughs were gonna be instituted for, for a fairly long amount of time. After the American Rescue Plan was passed, um, the, the administration felt comfortable ending the furloughs and bringing, back, and bringing everyone back to work. Um, so part of what we're seeing um, with the $77 million is basically a, a budget adjustment to, to show that these furloughs did not continue as long as they were supposed to. The other piece of this is that the city is reimbursing employees for lost wages during the furloughs. Oh, so they um, did retroactively build in some to, to pay them back for that time off. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so so employees are being paid back and then also just the budget, um, you know, for personnel costs were a little lower in the original budget because, again, these furloughs were expected to extend a little longer than they did. Um, so basically, the, the administration's explanation for why the numbers in the presentation and the ordinance didn't match uh, was that all they were presenting in their PowerPoint presentation um, they basically left out the furlough costs. So, so they're saying that everything that you're not seeing in our presentation, um, all the money that's missing, that's all just related to the furloughs. Hmm. Okay. And there's some maneuver they did about an audit. Uh, and so all the money goes into a particular 
budget and it happens to be the fire department. Will you explain how that worked? Yeah, so, so federal funding, a lot, you know, federal programs often have, you know, very specific rules around how, you know, federal dollars can be spent. Um, you know, uh, New Orleans is really used to this type of maneuvering, you know, when it comes to FEMA dollars that need to be spent in a specific way on a specific type of project. So um, a lot of, you know, dealing with federal money is making sure that you stay in line with these rules, because if you're found to have gone around them, you may have to repay the federal government. So it's really important that you stay within the rules. Making that a little trickier is that federal rules aren't always clear. Um, they can change. So the city is attempting to, to make sure they're really following the rules here and they're not you know, eligible to have to give this money back. Um, so, so what they're doing is they're putting all $77 million into a account uh, controlled by the fire department. It's an account for accepting federal funds. And from there, they're gonna take $77 million out of the fire department's general fund and then distribute that to, you know, basically what they really want to spend the $77 million right. for. Um, and the reason for that seems to be twofold. Um, the first reason seems to be simply for, for simpler accounting. Um, again, you need to keep really close track of where this money goes. Um, and, you know, again, from what the administration says, they're, they're saying it's going to be easier to account for all this money using this particular accounting method. Um, the, the other thing um, is that, you know, they're seeming to indicate that putting it through the fire department um, ensures that the city will remain within, you know, whatever federal guidelines come out. So, so one eligible use for this money is public safety agencies. Um, so, you know, I, I guess the, the, the tactic there would be, well, all this money is going to the fire department, um, which is a public safety agency, um, and therefore it's eligible. However, I will note that What's included in the 70, the, the, you know, the, the department by department money, you know, where the money is actually going after it goes to the fire department. From what I understand, all of those costs are also eligible for funding under, you know, ARP guidelines. Um, so I, I wouldn't view this, um, you know, at this point as a way to skirt or, or you know, get around these federal guidelines. I, I what it seems like to me and, and Charles step in if, if you disagree, but what it seems like to me uh, is that this is kind of a, an extra layer of justification for, for these funds. You know, it, it, it's possible that the federal government will look at all this money going to the fire department and say, OK, that's fine. That's all eligible in the case that they need to take a closer look. Um, you know, they'll be able to look at all these individual expenditures, which again, seem to also be eligible um, for funding. Is that yeah. making any sense at all? No, no it does. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating that, you know, we're, we're once again forced to speculate on this because, uh, you know, a communications strategy for public agencies in this town is to come up with a two-word explanation for something and then stick to it even if people ask follow-up questions, you know, data error, um, federal compliance, uh, anyway. But uh, I think, you know, with these, uh, with these ARPA rules, in, in a way, they do, they do seem to be a little bit tricky and maybe even contradictory. Like, for example, you're allowed to use this money to forestall departmental cuts, which would seem to mean Seem to me to mean, you know, most departments, their biggest budget, part of their budget is personnel. Um, so that would seem to me that, you know, you would use it for payroll for various departments. But then there's a separate, and, and, and you know, I haven't read all the fine print, but there's a separate rule that says you're only supposed to use it for regular payroll for public safety agencies. 
So, you know, those, those two, and again, I'm just speculating here, but you know, that, that could account for some of this because specifically where it's going in the fire department is the fire department's personal services budget, which is the personal personnel budget. So that, that is, you know, most definitely something that these funds can be used for. It specifically says you can use it for payroll for public safety. So that would, that would be, you know, that would be, I, I wouldn't even call it a best guess. That would just be a guess um, as to why they're doing this particular maneuver. Another, I mean, what the, the city says that, you know, again, they're complicated rules. You've got to read the fine print. Uh, but the city claims that under ARP guidelines, they're allowed to use the money for lost revenue. So that's, that's a key thing that we've talked about before, especially in the coronavirus crisis, um, how certain um, federal funds need to be used only on your costs related to the pandemic. So if you had to mm. you know, spend more on your health department, then you can cover that. Um, now, this allow, you know, according to the city, allows you to cover lost revenue. So for New Orleans, for example, the coronavirus halted tourism. So we haven't had as much sales taxes. So we're missing all this money. Um, and again, the city says that we're allowed to use this money um, on lost revenue, which again is why I'm saying that even after the fire department, all of these subsequent expenditures seem to you know, be eligible under ARP guidelines. Because again, it's all just related to lost revenue that we would have had in a normal year. Who's set to gain the most from, from this money? Uh, so there are, so I think NOPD um, is the single largest department. Um, you know, again, most of the costs in here are for, for uh, uh, salaries, for personnel costs. So um, you're seeing a lot of raises in there. Um, you know, money for new software, things like that. Um, you know, I, I would go through the whole list. I think that the whole list is about 23 different departments and agencies. Um, but, you know, you definitely see a lot of money going to the criminal justice system, not just the police, but a little over $7 million for the, uh, uh, the sheriff's office. Um, you have money going to um, municipal court, criminal district court. You have more money going to the public defenders as well, um, the district attorney, and then another kind of area of, uh, of focus here is the, the Office of uh, Business and External Services. Um, this was an office that was created by the Cantrell administration last year, and it basically encompasses the Department of Safety and Permits, Code Enforcement, the Historic District Landmark Commission. So, so you know, a, a lot of the departments that deal with things like permitting and, and, and regulation. So um, there was a lot, also a lot of money that went into, you know, again, you know, those offices like the Department of Safety and Permits and so forth. But um, for the most part, again, it, it, it sounds like, you know, a lot of department leaders came in and, and basically what they said is we've been operating on this, you know, shoestring budget, we, you know, haven't had enough employees to do the job we need. So this is just going to bring us back to an adequate level. Um, so again, we're not looking at a lot of new initiatives, you know, a, a lot of new stuff here. It's really just bringing us back to where we should have been without that huge revenue loss from the pandemic. And does the committee have to revisit this and also approve it before it advances? They punted on it. Does it have to go back? No, te technically a committee vote isn't required. It's, it's typical. Typically you'll see a committee um, vote for something before it goes to the full council. In this case, um, because of those, you know, number inconsistencies we talked about earlier, um, the council said it wasn't, you know, uh, a councilwoman, Helena Moreno, who is currently chairing the budget committee in the absence of Jerry Brossett, who was recently arrested on a DUI charge. But basically, she said um, that 
there wasn't enough information for them to vote today, but we can skip the committee vote and we'll just bring this to the full council. Um, the administration was stressing that there's kind of a time constraint here. They're claiming that they have, you know, some serious cash flow issues. They have to get this money moving to, you know, keep, you know, payroll going and keep paying vendors, you know, um, to, to, to keep things moving. So I, I think that the, um, the administration is, is urging speed here. Today is Thursday morning. It's the day of the city council meeting. Is it up today as far as you know? As far as I know, it is not. It was indicated on the agenda earlier this week that it was going to be deferred. Um, you know, on the agenda highlights, they didn't send it out, um, which, you know, you would expect to if they were going to consider it today. Um, so my guess is that it's not going to happen today, um, but we'll see. Everyone wants a little piece of this money, obviously. You talked about the um, district attorney's office. What does the NOPD specifically want? Yeah, so again, a lot of their stuff is, is uh, you know, payroll-related raises and, 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 and um, so forth. Um, you know, what, one other detail that, you know, we've pulled out, obviously we've been reporting on um, the city's surveillance capabilities for a while, but um, the city is planning to use a million dollars uh, of this money to buy, you know, somewhere 150 to 160 new license plate readers. Um, you know, as far as we know, the current number of uh, license plate readers in New Orleans is 89. So uh, this, you know, uh, you know, more than doubles it by a long shot. Um, so that's one of the uses. They're also the Department of Sanitation is also using this money to buy um, 20 new crime cameras for uh, uh, to catch illegal dumping, which is something the city has been doing for a couple of years. So yeah, some surveillance costs in that 77 million for sure. And New Orleans is one of the more highly surveilled cities already in the country and you just wrapped up a long series that is just launching this week on surveillance. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, it's a project called Neighborhoods Watched. Um, we've been working on it for about a year and a half. And, you know, it's a five part series that, that really tries to, for lack of a better phrase, really set out the rules of the game, you know, try and lay out the players, you know, how the surveillance system works, um, who regulates it um, and, and, you know, what's kind of going on in that scene. It's, it's pretty lengthy. There's a lot of detail in there. And again, it's the culmination of, of years of reporting on the system. But yeah, a five-part series at surveillance.thelensnola.org. Would highly encourage everyone to check it out. And there's a link just on the homepage, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And we'll be tweeting it out and everything like that. Should be easy to find. Cool. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Nick, Recently, we had a long discussion with you and Jeremy Young about the case of Brandon Jackson. This was a story that The Lens covered in partnership with Al Jazeera. Can you tell everyone what's happening now on that case and why it's important? Yeah, so Brandon Jackson is one of around 1,500 people still in prison in Louisiana on a non-unanimous jury conviction. So this was a law that was uh, on the books in Louisiana for over a century until it was repealed by voters in 2018. And just last year was ruled unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. Uh, but in a subsequent ruling, the United States Supreme Court ruled that that people like Brandon, who, are, who have been in prison for years on these verdicts, shouldn't get a new trial. Regardless, the, the state court system still could grant them new trials. And so Brandon has a hearing this week in Bossier City, where he was Bossier Parish, where he was convicted, where a judge will decide whether or not uh, to grant him a new trial based on the fact that his his conviction was not unanimous. This is one of you know hundreds of, of similar cases playing out across the state right now. So it's really you know Brandon's not the only one going through this. So so we'll see what happens. And 
whatever happens today won't be the final word on on it, but but it'll it should be interesting. And have you spoken to his mom lately? She was a big part of your story. Yes, I have. She will be also attending the hearing this afternoon. You know, I think she is cautiously hopeful, as she has been for the past twenty five years, as she's gone to these many many hearings in which Brandon has tried to make a case for, for why he should be um, released from prison. We should note that he's, he's always maintained his innocence um, in, in this. He, he was convicted of an armed robbery back in 1997. She is in not the best health, and that's, that's one of the things that, even if Brandon gets out eventually, I think there, she's worried that if it's not, you know, if it's not soon, then, then she may not be around to see him. Hmm. And the story got some local attention in Shreveport. Tell me about that. Yeah, the the Shreveport uh, Times both wrote a story about about our documentary and also profiled Brandon's mom, Miss Molly, and she uh, um, and just about her life and her experience. Um, you know, having a son in prison all these years on a on a non-unanimous jury verdict. Um, so it's definitely yeah, definitely gotten some coverage locally. And I don't know, you know, if that if that changes anything in terms of how how the judge is gonna gonna view Brandon's case, but. It seems quite likely that folks are aware of it here. So, Do you think all this attention may prompt the DA to change his mind about retrying it, regardless of what the judge does? I don't believe so. I think, you know, the DA has been pretty staunchly opposed to to reviewing cases based on the fact that, it, that they're split juries. He's actually specifically, when, when we inquired with Al Jazeera about this specific case and whether he would maybe take a look at it, he he said he would not, and that in his opinion there was plenty of evidence for a conviction. So we'll see exactly what kind of a case you know the DA makes today mm. in court or the the prosecutor on the case makes today in court. But ultimately, this is gonna you know this is gonna be left up to the judge, and uh, the judge you know can can make a ruling on it how, however he sees fit. So. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. And an update on this story from criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. At the hearing today, the judge declined to make a ruling in Brandon Jackson's case, staying the motion pending action from the Louisiana Supreme Court on how local courts should handle these cases. All right, guys. Have a good rest of your week. Thank you. I'll see you guys later. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>